last Sunday go with Pastor Jason here? Great. Isn't he awesome? Yeah. I mean, having Rick leave, uh, for, former associate pastor, has been um, obviously really challenging for us. But one of the things that was good is it kind of kicked us in the butt and said, hey, you know what? Instead of just sending Rick back and forth to, to preach, why don't we switch more? Um, so look out for more Jason in the future. But he's, uh, he's amazing. He's become a really amazing friend and colleague I've learned a lot from. Okay, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're just going to be looking at verses 9 to 11 because there's quite a bit to unpack here. Um, if you're just joining us, we're, we kind of normally move through a book of the Bible you know, medium speed, I wouldn't say super slow, verse by verse, but also we don't just do like a high level um, flyover and we, we stop in certain places that are significant or that are notable. Um, and that's what we're doing this morning. Um, Corinth is a mess. Paul planted this church five years earlier. He's now sending them this letter to try and straighten things out. They have a lot of questions about what it means to follow Jesus. None of them were raised in the church. No one had any context for very few of them. I mean, there might have been some Jewish converts, but in Corinth, probably most people who converted to Christianity were came from a very, very pagan, unbelieving, um, and we talked about this before, pretty, uh, pretty anti-Christian background on a lot of fronts. And he's just talked to them about not wanting to pursue lawsuits with each other. And Paul's basic argument is, like, guys, you're a family. So if there are disputes among you, even if those people can't work them out, that might be understandable, but there's got to be someone in your community that can help you work through these things. Because what they were doing is they were going to the public secular courts. And it wasn't like the courts were run by, um, you know, judges and uh, of integrity, like, you know, hopefully you know, tipping the scales, you know, most would experience in our present day courts that have been influenced by uh, Judeo-Christian ethics. These were court, uh, public courts that were really designed to bring shame upon those who lost the case, a way for people with honor to defend their honor, and they really favored the highly educated and the rich. They were, I mean, kangaroo court is too strong a word, but Paul's like, you shouldn't have to go there. You should be able to resolve these disputes amongst yourselves. And then he has this warning slash contrast in these verses that are really, really uh, powerful and provocative and probably, depending on where we sit this morning, um, anxiety-producing. He says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The context here is Paul is saying one of the reasons why you don't take another Christian to a public court in his day and age is because these courts are run by people whose lives are completely antithetical to the way of Jesus. So why would you submit to their authority on how to work things out? So that's the immediate context. Paul is drawing up what he what's called in the ancient world 
it wasn't just Christians who did this, philosophers did it too, a vice list, a list of vices that uh, aren't, it's not exhaustive, but they are there to show a way and pattern of living. And Paul says, some of you came from these backgrounds. Now you've been liberated. You have a new identity in Christ. You're walking a new way. And that's connected to the fact that, so therefore you're now a new family and you shouldn't be, uh, you should be able to work things out. Even if it's challenging, you should be able to take disputes and not have to go and both sit publicly under the authority of people who are not inheriting the kingdom of God. Let's do a quick little word study of every single Greek word that comes up for these labels. Because some of them are going to be um, the um, some of them are going to be pretty close to how we would perceive and understand them. Some of them are going to be uh, a little bit distinct, and it's important that you hear the uh, the distinction. So the first is when Paul talks about wrongdoers, he talks about a decoy, and wrongdoers is a, is a little it's a little um, little weak. It, it, it's it's a bit more the wicked, people who are intent and who live without reference to God and are simply um, doing what seems right in their own eyes. And he says, do you not know that the wicked or wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? And just pause there, kingdom of God, we'll come back to that um, in a few moments. He says, don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, and the word there is pornoi, from which we get, uh, no, let's go back down. We're gonna, no, we're going to keep it here. Um, uh, pornoi, from which we get pornography, but it had a broader uh, lexical range in the first century. It, it, it was a Jewish way of saying any form of sexual uh, engagement or play outside of a covenant marriage between man and woman. Um, so there was kind of like sex, uh, sexual exchange within marriage, man and woman, Everything else was pornography. And in most translations, it'll translate sexually immoral. Idolaters, that was people who worshipped false gods, right? Or maybe they worshipped Jesus, but they were tempted, as Rome said, like, you can have Jesus, you can worship Jesus, you just have to worship Caesar as well. You have to make sure that you're in submission to Caesar, that Caesar is Lord. And um, Paul says, no, we don't share our worship or our submission to anyone except for God. Um, adulterers uh, is someone who is married but has sexual relations with someone outside of their married covenant, even if they or their partner say it's fine. Uh, so it's any sexual play or engagement outside of a husband and wife relationship. Or men who have sex with men. This gets a little complicated. There's two words here. Uh, Malakoi and Arsinakotai. Uh, Malakoi, uh, most literal translation is soft. Some translations will say effeminate, but it's um, effeminate's not the best way of coming at it from my understanding and research. Uh, soft is probably better, and it's um, partnered with this other word, Arsinakotai, which we'll talk about in a moment, um, that is a compound of arson, which is Greek for man, and koite, which means to bed, so man better someone who beds men. And the reason why there's some, we'll talk about this, there's a, I don't know, controversy is 
the right word, wrong word? I'm not sure. There's discussion about this term because the Apostle Paul here actually invents this word. This is the first time this word ever shows up. And so that leads some people to say, oh, oh, what does that mean? Does that mean we can't possibly know what it means? And what is Paul trying to do? And every other instance of our synecotia that we have comes well after Paul. Nor thieves, klepti, from which we get kleptomaniac, right? Someone who makes their living by, instead of working and producing, they take from other people. Uh, the greedy, pleonekai, and this is someone who is um, defined by having a ongoing compulsive craving for more. They're just never satisfied. So not just discontent in the sense of like, oh, I wish, you know, wish things could be better. They are obsessed with having more. They want to consume people, experiences, wealth. They want to hoard. Um, they want to pull things towards themselves instead of being generous and allow God's blessing to flow through them. Drunkards are those who are perpetually uh, not sober-minded. So today we could talk about any kind of um, substance, not just alcohol, that impairs your judgment, that takes you out of being sober-minded and unfocused. And drunkard, uh, of course, refers to those who are just caught in this pattern of living into um, a, a state of mind where they are out of their minds, in a sense. Slanderers, uh, this is, again, quite a strong word. This is someone who uses abusive language, um, someone who uses their language to undermine and undercut, to verbally abuse and mistreat people in kind of an ongoing way. We would call it kind of you know, bullying now, um, if you've ever experienced bullying in the workplace or on a, a team or in your school by someone who just seems to take deep pleasure in going out of their way to just cut you down, find little ways to, little and big ways to hurt you. That is a slanderer or a swindler. Swindler is probably, <laughs> you know, we, I don't know, I'm of a generation where I think of like the Hamburglar or McDonald's, like, it's like, oh, you little swindler. It's, it's not a very uh, punchy translation. And, and this is hard because Harpages is, is difficult um, to connect with the visceral punch that it has in the Greek. But it really means someone who is vicious and destructive in their attempts to take what doesn't belong to them. Um, those who plunder, those who take things by force. So, you know, we think of, let's say, the Vikings, who roll up in a place, get up, they deal out death and destruction, take what they want, and then leave. That's what that word means. Thieves are those who steal. Swindlers are those who plunder, but also use violence and intimidation as the means through which they do that. You know, it, again, it, it, it wouldn't be, um, there'd be a parallel there with the way we might talk about terrorists today or people who use violence in order to secure an, um, what they want by intimidating people, by hurting people, by attacking people, by damaging people. That's a breakdown of the words. 
Let's just pause there for a moment because I want to ask you two questions. What are you surprised to see on this list or in this passage? Is there anything that surprises you? Men who have sex with men. Malakoi, Asernikotai. Great. So that's surprising maybe to see that there for some of us, especially in a culture where anything related to sexuality and sexual expression culturally is just met with an immediate, like, that's wonderful, amazing, we fully affirm everything. Uh, and outside of, as long as there's consent, sexual activity uh, is pretty much advertised as something that has no boundaries. Anything else on that list that surprises you? Or in the passage that surprises you? For sure, this is a vice list. It's not a hierarchy, it's a vice list. And again, it's not exhaustive, but Paul is drawing from the most noticeable sins that he sees playing out in Corinth and using those as a contrast to the new life in Christ that Christians are called into. So I hand over here, I don't know who it was, Wendy. Oh, yeah, yeah, they're kind of layered and they're kind of uh, like the Russian nesting doll they have. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. So there's this real, this real specificity, right? He says wrongdoers won't inherit the kingdom of God. He doesn't leave it there. He then kind of clicks on the next um, tree that opens up all these examples that he wants them to make sure that those who are committed to this way will not inherit the kingdom of God. Mike. Right. Yeah. And Paul, and we'll get to that where Paul says, and this is what some of you were, right? Like this, you, you know, we can, I think unless we're really operating with a massive spiritual blind spot, you can probably find a home in at least one or two of these categories of sin. And what I mean by that is you can probably say, yeah, this is something I've struggled with. Uh, this is something that, this is the kind of sin that comes very easily to me. I don't have to be tempted very much to kind of go down this road. Is there anything that concerns you about this passage as you read it? Oh, yeah, good. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, good, yeah. So there is this really sharp division. And the inference here, and well, it's not an inference, it's what you know, the Spirit through Paul is teaching, is that there are certain ways of being in the world which are just wrong. He actually uses the term wrongdoing, right? I mean, our culture is very hesitant to even use language of, oh, that was wrong, about many, many things. And there's always sort of a, a zeitgeist in the air where we can say, oh, we can all agree that this is wrong. 
But for someone to just forcefully say, oh, yeah, wrongdoers, the wicked, and the wicked are defined by these things, that probably strikes most of us as like really, I mean, culturally for where we are, maybe it feels really harsh, maybe very black and white, very uh, no compromise. Maybe it even sounds inhuman because in a world where, uh, in our culture where we kind of make ourselves the center of everything, yeah, there's this very quick pivot to like, well, no one's perfect. And yeah, I do some of these things, but like overall I'm a good person or like we're all human. We have these kind of like outs. And yet Paul is presenting something here, which is uh, really challenging. And, you know, the, the part that for me sticks out is his brace to the church that says, don't be deceived. And what he is essentially saying is he says, there is an absolute difference between those who are not in Christ and those who are in Christ. One does not inherit the kingdom of God. One does. Right? This is, this is as Paul is, this is as close as Paul gets to not all dogs go to heaven. Right? <laughs> oh, well, we're all just like Jesus, God loves us, and we're all just doing the best we can, and we're living through life, and some of us are doing better than others. And at the end of the day, God's kind of like, hey, it's all good. Love and forgiveness. Like, there is a line between those who are, and he'll write this in Romans, in sin, or defined by their sin, or those who are in Christ. And one faces separation from God forever. One faces pleasures at God's right hand forevermore in a new heavens and new earth. Okay, we'll get to our, let me get to our Senecortite because that was brought up. Um, and that's a really, really important thing to work through. So let's just go to the Senecortite slide, Dan. I want to unpack this a little bit more next week in its particularities. Uh, but I'll give you enough to sort of make you uncomfortable and then let it sit and simmer for seven days. Um, we we, we want to we explore this issue because it obviously has branching issues related to um, kind of all things in, in terms of the way we think about them, all things LGBTQ. Um, we want to be very, very careful with this. This is a live issue for many of us. This is a passage that has been used uh, and some would use the language even if weaponized against people who are uh, gay, lesbian. And so we want to acknowledge that there are people in this church, uh, probably many of us, have gay family members, have gay friends, have gay co-workers. These are all people that we care about. There's people in our church that may be struggling with their own identity, uh, same-sex attraction, um, and wondering where does that place me as it relates to what is it? Is there a way that I can integrate this with my Christian faith or do I have to choose one or the other? And so as we move through this, I'm really sensitized to the fact that this is not an abstract topic that we'll just kind of throw some information at. I want to be sensitive. I want to be careful. I want to be thoughtful and I want to be biblical in my approach. And at a high level, and I'll talk about this a bit more next week, but what we want to do is we want to understand what does it mean as Christians to arrive at a conviction about what the Bible says, what the Bible means, how the Bible is calling us to live, calling all Christians to live. But that has to be distinguished, the conviction, from how do I express that conviction in the world? How do I manifest it? How do I show up in my relationships? 
because you can have a right biblical conviction about something, but you can express it in a very immature, unchristlike way. And what I want for myself and what I want for us as a church is to continually grow and deepen in having right, thoughtful, biblical convictions and that we know how to communicate those in as loving a way as possible, in as courageous and gracious a way as possible. And I'll borrow you know, the two words that I think are helpful from Brene Brown here. I think that means being clear and kind when we express what we believe to people. We want to be as clear as possible. And we want to be as kind as possible. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer for anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that is in you. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. I'm going to read that passage again, but I'm going to read it from the First Nations version. Instead, set your hearts on the chosen one as your honored chief. Always be ready to give an answer to the ones who ask you about the hope that you carry inside you. Give your answer to them in a kind and respectful way. Do what you know deep inside to be right, so when outsiders accuse you, they will be put to shame as you walk in the good way following the chosen one. So I want to ask for some patience as we walk through the issues, not just connected to this word, but the issues in the coming verses and chapters that are connected to all things, human embodied reality, embodied sexuality, for singles, married, um, you know, it's going to, what Paul gets into, because sexual immorality, pornoia, is so prevalent in, and so just par for the course in the Corinthian culture, he has to spend a good amount of time teaching a theology of the body and a theology of sexuality. So here is the kind of the tip of the spear into that. But where this word comes from, is arson, okoitai. It is an invented word by Paul. It doesn't occur anywhere, but the words arseno and koitai do occur. They are paired together in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. In Leviticus uh, uh, 18 and 20 or 21, I think, where it's, and those are the famous verses that if you are in this discussion, um, you shall not lie with a man as with a woman. Uh, that is an abomination to the Lord. It is detestable. Those words, when it gets translated into um, Greek, are arseno, man, koitai, bedding. And so what scholars, both uh, Christian, non-Christian, and both Christian scholars who don't affirm um, same-sex marriage, and those who do, they all recognize what Paul is doing is clearly pulling from God's original commands in Leviticus that forbids any sexual uh, engagement between those of the same sex. So arsenokoitai, we'll talk about some of the nuances around it because you're going to hear arguments like, well, does it mean maybe it's like man, boy, pederasty, like a sexual mentoring relationship, which was super common in the ancient world. 
Um, I'll talk a little bit more about next week why I don't think that is the best argument for what's happening here. We'll look at some other discussions around is it just exploitation that Paul is worried about? Because, again, as you can see here in this vice list, all these things are pretty obviously destructive. Um, but we've been raised in a culture to think, well, but if two people who are consenting and want to get together and get married and have a sexual relationship, like that shouldn't bother anybody, no one's hurting anybody. Um, and so we'll kind of dive into some of those objections, counters, counter contentions for there. But for today, I want you to hear that Paul is making it very clear that those who are on this path will not inherit the kingdom of God. Raise your hand if you're uncomfortable. Yeah. Valid. Valid. And let's be clear what Paul means when he talks about inheriting the kingdom of God. If you pull up the Bible timeline, sometimes the kingdom of God is talked about as a present reality, something that we've that has come upon us, that is within us, that we are living into. But whenever the word inheritance in the kingdom of God comes up, that's something different. Because an inheritance is something that you don't have yet, but it's stored up for you in the future for a future date. So when Paul says, these wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God, can we just go back to the, yeah, there, Dan? Bible timeline is God created, humanity rebelled, sin entered, corrupted our nature, God is redeeming us, especially in and through Jesus in a spiritual way, liberated from sin's power and grace. And then Jesus will come again to install a new creation, a creation where every tear will be wiped from the eye. But there's something that happens before that new creation. Um, does anyone know? There's kind of like when Jesus comes, it's not just Jesus comes and then Hey, everything's made new. Does anyone know? I want to guess. There's a final judgment. There's a judgment day. And everyone who has ever lived will stand before God and will have the burden, in a sense, of trying to justify themselves, which means, say, this is why I should be able to enter in. To This is why I shouldn't be destroyed. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 gives a pretty graphic depiction of the return of Jesus before the installation of new creation. Paul says, um, this will happen, talking about God repaying those who are mistreating Christians. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel or respond to the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So there's a judgment, separation of the sheep and the goats, the wrongdoers from the righteous, and those who are in Christ are invited into new creation. That new creation, that fullness of redeemed reality, that is the inheritance that Paul is referencing when he's talking about inheriting the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here and now, partially, like kind of like lowercase k kingdom. God's at work. We look around and so are the powers of sin and principalities. But when Jesus comes, he's going to judge and destroy all that which is set against God and then enhance 
all those things that are good in creation. We're new creation in a new heavens and new earth. So this is speaking to eternal destinies and trajectories. Now, one of the things that comes up in this is, does this mean that Christians can disinherit themselves? Right? Does this passage mean that we can become Christian and let's go to the next slide, Dan. Sorry, next one. We can recognize that we're valuable, but that we're fallen and we turn to Christ and we live in a certain way, but we make enough bad decisions that we sort of get disqualified. And this is a question of what's been called eternal security. Do Christians have eternal security or not? And I want to make it very clear. I think this passage, just like every other passage in scripture, um, actually reinforces eternal security. That if you have truly surrendered your life to Christ, what Paul will say is you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified. You were defined by these things, not anymore. Jesus said in John chapter 10, I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. Jesus says in John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's a confidence. It's not most who believe in him, you know, on balance. It's all who place their faith in him. Romans 5, Paul writes to the Romans and says, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Ephesians 1 says, you were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing your future inheritance. So you were sealed. So as a Christian, I may struggle with sin. I may continue to return to greed or pornea or drunkenness. But God has washed me, God has sanctified me, God has justified me. And what that means is as I learn to follow him, my life will more and more leave sinful and destructive ways behind me and be enhanced by right ways of loving God and loving other people. No commentator uses this to say, if you are in Christ, you better watch out. You have a few bad weeks in a row. Make some bad decisions. You've kind of like unsaved yourself, and now you kind of kind of go through. No, that's the point. When you are baptized, you go under the water. Your life, you've, you've died. That's your judgment. You have died to your old way of living, and all of your sin has been placed on Jesus. When you come out of the water, you are cleansed. You are washed. You are now redefined. You are now in Him. Now, if you live in ways that are sinful while being in him, are there consequences? Of course, sir. God talks, the Bible talks again and again about God will discipline his sons and daughters because he loves them, right? We have to learn to walk in newness of life, but we can't disinherit ourselves. We can't unadopt ourselves. We can't unsave ourselves. So this passage is actually holds a tremendous promise. And it's, Sad that I have to say this, but I, I want to recognize that for so many people here, the focal point of this passage is probably Malakoi or Because we're in such a 
um, sexually charged uh, culture that is making much from schools to businesses to social media about all things related to sexuality and liberation on that front. We just kind of go there in the text. But Paul is building this to this conclusion. In verse 11, this way of life, you were under the power and domination of sin. You were lost. You were without God and without hope in this world. That's what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. You were washed through baptism. God set you apart. He justified you. Your sin placed on Christ. Christ's righteousness placed on you so that you could stand before God and not try and self-justify yourself, but you have a justifier who says, they're with me. I've paid their debt. They get to walk into new creation. Paul is saying, this is the amazing thing. Now again, is he talking to a church that had all their spiritual ducks in order? No, right? He doesn't say, some of you were under the power of sin, and then you became a Christian, and ever since then, it's been amazing. You're just hitting grand slams for Jesus all the time. He's just spent six chapters, and he's going to spend another nine saying, Oof, you guys got a lot of stuff to work out in the area of money, sexuality, how you relate to one another, how you worship, how you buy and sell. But it doesn't stop him from declaring, if you are in Christ, you are now a new creation. You have a new status. And now you have to live from that new identity. Before you were identified, you were identified with and identified by your sin. Now you're identified with Christ. You're still going to struggle with sin, but God has opened up a way for you to overcome. Are there people who come to Christ and still struggle with pornoia? Yes. Are there people who come to Christ and still struggle with greed? To Mike's point, yes. Are there people who come to Christ and still struggle with same-sex attraction? Yes. Are there people who still come to Christ and struggle with wanting to take shortcuts? and just steal and leverage and play the game in the system and not actually produce and just find quick and easy ways to make a fast buck? Yes. But the difference is someone who is in Christ will eventually come to a place of saying, I, I can't walk on this path anymore. This is not congruent with what it means to follow Jesus. I need to pursue holiness. I want to. That's one of the gifts of salvation is that God actually opens up for you a desire to want to be like him. Charles Hodge, the famous, um, well, maybe not super famous, but within Reformed Presbyterian circles, so if you're Scottish, you may have heard the name before. He says, holiness of life does not get us into heaven. We don't inherit the kingdom because we can show to God and say, look at this list. Here's the book of all the stuff I did, God. No, no, no. But all who have been redeemed do pursue holiness. Do you understand that distinction? We're not saved by what we do, but because we're saved, because God's spirits at work in us, not perfectly. It's not that it's always perfectly progressive. Sometimes there's a few steps forward and a few steps back, but there's an overall trajectory that we are pursuing pleasing God and honoring God. If we do not seek holiness, he says, then it's likely that we haven't been saved. And that our faith is, maybe it's inherited, maybe it's kind of like a belief system, 
but it's not a living faith. In Christ, you have a new identity and a new mission, which will cause you to avoid and resist sin as you come to know God more, as you come to want to glorify God more, and as you come to want to enjoy him forever. The desire to live in those kinds of ways will, Paul writes, give way to a different kind of spirit, a Holy Spirit, a Holy Ghost. So this feels a little bit like a cliffhanger. I know I've put enough out there that it has um, ruffled and maybe placed some a splinter in people's minds. I am going to be putting some, I think, really helpful videos that are relatively short in the Summit uh, newsletter for next Friday. So make sure you watch those videos because obviously things related to uh, human sexuality, we could teach on this stuff for years. We are going to take, we're going to do a bit of a deep dive over the coming weeks, but I want to also provide you with resources so that you're um, doing kind of extra work for those of you who really want to work through this um, and feel a need to work through it. And it is because um, churches and pastors who have not been uh, clear and thoughtful and very careful in how they communicate things ha uh, have done a lot of damage. And so we want to make sure that we're walking through these passages with razor-sharp exegetical clarity, which means how we understand the text, and making sure we're applying them well. Let's take a moment to pray, to hold these things before God, and to ultimately give thanks to God for the assurance that comes in this passage. God, there are parts of the Bible we love and we're excited to quote, throw it on social media. And when we know that a church is talking about something, we're just excited. And there are other parts that are really demanding. They're demanding theologically, they're demanding intellectually, they're demanding relationally, they're demanding to our own hearts. And this is one passage, and it's not just demanding for one particular group on this list, because like Mike said, these, these touch um, all of our souls in some way. Um, none of us are without sin. That's why we have yielded to Jesus. But God, we want to understand what your word says. We want to contend with it, and we want it to shape us, not the other way around. And so in the coming weeks, as we learn about what does it mean to be an embodied human being? What does it mean to see and understand and use my sexuality in a way that glorifies God and brings me pleasure in life and extends pleasure in life to, to those around me, to in the community, in our world, God? It's a powerful force, and we need your wisdom to know how to channel it well. God, thank you for the promise here that our past doesn't define us. Our sin doesn't define us. Even our struggle with certain sins don't define us. But in Christ, you see us as washed, sanctified, and justified. And you continually invite us to live from that place, from that new identity. May every person here, young to old, gain a new understanding of what that means as we move forward in our walk. In Jesus' name, amen.